Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds and this week you find us dreaming of New York in the late 1970s where urban decay made delinquents of some but creative and commercial geniuses of others. The Big Apple almost went bankrupt but it fostered untold cultural riches. Graffiti artists roamed the subway tagging trains that became vibrant works of art. Punk ruled the clubs and the new music, hip-hop ruled the streets, changed fashion and energised a generation. London caught the cultural cold from that New York sneeze. After all, it wasn't exactly a barrel of laughs here in the late 1970s either. Rubbish piling up on the streets was like a metaphor for a sorry government. Street art told the stories that official history didn't. Hustlers and impresarios abounded. Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood defined much of the spirit of the era. Brilliant inventors of self and scene, punk here, rap there, fashion and exquisitely tailored bondage gear. Cleverness wrapped up in attitude that made a fortune as it ostentatiously gave the world two fingers. This chaotic creative epoch, its tribes, its music, its clothes, its art, flyers and literature, its film and TV, its maximalist, messy excellence and that bad but good attitude is the subject of a big, bold new exhibition at London's Saatchi Gallery. It's called Beyond the Streets and it fills every conceivable nook, cranny, shelf and cubbyhole of that cavernous building. And Monocle on Culture donned its vintage Adidas tracksuit, turned its ghetto blaster up to the max and went on a very fun field trip. Our first port of call is to take five with the Beyond the Streets curator, Roger Gassman. Well, he's a lot more than a curator. He's a street art historian. He's the authority on the scene. And quite a bit of the stuff in the show is from his collection or stuff he commissioned for this very show. And here is Roger Gassman. I am Roger Gassman. I am the founder and curator of Beyond the Streets. Yeah, and thanks for having us. This is an incredible thing. I wondered if I could ask you if you've ever thought about your own curatorial style, because I feel like here we're in a kind of very benign personal collection that someone's thrown some dynamite into. <laughs> no disrespect in a very good way, but can you define the, your curatorial style and what you've tried to do with this show here? Thankfully, I have some great curators that work with me that often stop me from doing too many ridiculous things and often hone in and make much more sense of what's in my mind because just because it makes sense in my mind doesn't mean it makes sense for everyone else. But I grew up in the early 90s loving graffiti, being obsessed with graffiti, being obsessed with punk rock and hardcore and you know subcultures. And I quickly started meeting and learning more of the artists, meeting people in bands, and just started collecting things, flyers, ephemera, artwork, books, you name it. And so much of this has all just ended up becoming things I love, things I've been inspired by, and in a sense, parts of uh, you know the octopus arms, because I've really been able to see how they really all connect. Uh, something we've come to say a lot is education through entertainment. You know, you're not going to learn about so many of these cultures or subcultures if we're not able to entertain people at this moment because you can keep people's attention for 15 seconds. And also, instead of just saying graffiti and street art, which of course so much of this comes from, but it's rule breakers and mark makers and people that did things, you know, on their own terms. There's such a lot in here across art, fashion, design, graphic design, and of course music. 
those subcultures were on collision course to meet each other. That's the kind of fruits of which we're seeing here today, Roger. For you, what was the kicker, though? What was the, did it start with the music? You mentioned punk rock, or was it the art? What was the kicker for you? For me, it started off with punk rock in hardcore in D.C. in the early 90s. I had friends that were in bands. I had people I looked up to that were in bands that I weren't friends yet. I started going to shows, meeting people, and they all wrote graffiti. And I guess that's what you do. You do this and you write graffiti. So that's what I started doing. A bunch of them were a little older than me. They introduced me to someone else and introduced me to someone else. But the gateway was going to local shows in Washington, D.C. in the early 90s. That's 100% it. And I can really just draw a diagram of I was in New Jersey this weekend to see this band play. I met someone that was in this band. They were from L.A. They wrote graffiti. I started trading photos with them. I went to visit them on spring break. I met these three other people. Like it's very mapped out. In it's my a family life. tree of the Gasman cultural family tree, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and you're in a lot of it if you're at any of our Beyond the Street shows. Yeah. And in terms of the collection we see on the walls here, I know that a lot of it is your personal collection, but where did you source the rest of the stuff? What was the stuff that you've put in a, in a cargo container and brought to London or what's the stuff that's been commissioned fresh here? I'm really happy to say about 90% of this show, maybe 85% of it, is all new works that were made for this show by the artists, which makes me feel amazing and so thankful that they've done that and help and want to continue to push things forward and also have the trust in my vision so we can all be together. There is a lot of my personal ephemera and items in here and friends' personal ephemera that I've dug out of their collections of, let me borrow this, let me show this. And, uh, you know, I could probably fill one of these entire floors with the things on my hard drives and, you know, store it away nicely in my closets. And uh, well, as much as I love collecting the paintings, collecting the ephemera has been so important because it helps to tell the stories and place so much in context of the works. And I always want to sprinkle around as much of it as I can and sort of let it out of the closet when the time is right to show it in the proper context and not just, in a sense, burn it all on the internet without putting it in context. And I feel these shows give us an opportunity to do that. I mean, I want to just go back to, to DC and growing up, Roger, and the feeling that you got, because so much of the stuff that we see on the walls here at the Saatchi Gallery is kind of like a greyhound exploding out of the traps, right? It's so, there is such energy, there is such color and vibrancy. How did it feel for you back then? Did, it, did a penny kind of drop for you or was it a kind of slow accretion of, hey, I kind of like these beats, I like this music, I like this, I like this art and the people that make it? Was, it? was it the explosion that it seems to have been uh, here on the walls? It was definitely an explosion, but at the same time, you know, I'm 13, 14 years old. I had been into, you know, playing sports and going to baseball games and collecting good boy. cards. I wouldn't necessarily say I was a good boy, but you know, that was the stuff I was into. And very early on, I remember in fifth, sixth grade getting Sex Pistols tapes, um, Naked Ray Gun tapes and other bands like that and started listening to music that a lot of my friends weren't listening to. But I still had, you know, a lot of a bunch of varied friend groups, but it was an explosion from the beginning. It was just something I was into. When I look back on it now, it was absolutely much more of an explosion and so much different than 98% of everyone else that was around us. Uh, but it was just the norm and it was what we were doing. And thankfully, my friend group that was still on the football team or the cheerleader or what have you were completely accepting of what I was doing 
and into it and would ask questions and would come out and do things. The amount of times my friends that had nothing to do with graffiti or the street art or music culture went to a show with me or went to steal spray paint with me or came out on the train line and climbed a rooftop with me. And I know I brought spray paint, they brought a six pack of beer and they were just hanging out. Like, you know, I think that's what made so much of it just great memories. And it was just in a sense, the norm and what I was doing. And I'm so grateful that it's just been able to keep rolling like that. And the explosion you mentioned is that what I want to keep bringing to this culture and to the artists. Yeah. And, um, and, and in terms of the art, the art that we see, the music that we see, the mixed, there's the, the mixtape culture, all the rest of it. I wonder how finished you consider a lot of this culture to be, because it feels like a lot of this, we're looking at what is now a canon of this stuff from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but it also feels a little bit like someone's just pressed pause on a mixtape and we're seeing it kind of frozen in time in a way. How do you feel that, that this culture has kind of settled in and become a canon? How finished does it seem to you? This culture is definitely not finished. There's always the new young kid that's 13, 14 years old that's going to steal a can of spray paint or anything and go mark their name, scribe on a bus window and not really care what the rules are. And if they get in trouble, so be it. There's another batch of kids right behind them ready to do it. While this show absolutely respects and represents a lot of history, we're showcasing a lot of newer, younger artists also mixed in, you know, Vils, Felipe Pantone, Priest. There's a, there's a handful of them that, you know, they're not 23 years old, but they're not 60 or 70 years old. You know, we're, we're mixing it in and really trying to continue to add to what we're doing. And in this show also, we have 10 foot fume and talks who are three incredibly prolific London graffiti writers. And we're in London and we're going to respect them and respect their city and show that we care about what the streets are saying now at the same time. And you said that notion of respect, there's a really interesting room where you've got news reports and ephemera and you've got the kind of the the London-based graffiti busting team that was part of the London County Council or something. That's always considered to be, graffiti is often seen to be rebellion, it's the streets talking. How does it feel now to have it in a, in, a, in a gallery context, to take it off the walls and put it in a gallery? It's an age-old question, but I wonder, I mean, it looks great. Does it mean the same thing when it's on a gallery wall as, it, as opposed to a, a wall in a, in a suburb? One thing that's been important to us is work directly with all of the artists for these shows, not just reclaim something from the street and show it, or, hey, I like this thing, here's 20 photos of it on the street, and not work with the artists. This show is made with the artists and only made possible by the artists, and so many of these artists, as you can see by walking around, have gone on to just have such incredible studio careers, and the fact that they're making all of this you know, for the show says the strength of the streets you know the streets are always saying things the energy on the streets is so real and the artists that become incredible from it that move into this world there's a lot of artists that are incredible that stay on the street too are harnessing that energy of the street and bringing it in here and we're not just taking things from the street we're showing things in historical context like on that moments room. I'm very careful not to call it a timeline room because as soon as I- Sorry, I, I, I put those words in no one's mouth. Exactly, I know. But as soon as I say a timeline, yeah. I'm missing too many things because a timeline could be this entire building and I'd still miss things. So what I did is I worked with a great group of local historians, curators, people from the culture and put together what we're calling moments that were important and very broad strokes. and. 
I think bringing those, not I think, I know bringing those things into these settings is the only way the cultures are going to continue to grow and be respected. And so many of the people that started these cultures are dying or already gone or disappeared. So if we want to respect them while we're here, we need to respect them by bringing them to more of a general audience. Um, and general audience doesn't mean, you know, stupid people. General audience is everyone. Like, there are people that are not in the culture. You know, we need to continue to push this culture forward. And if we're not in buildings like this, showing historical things like this, we're not going to win. It's going to die with us. Roger, there's such an amazing array and collision of stuff. And I wondered, in the early days, how tribal the subcultures were that you described, whether people were kind of hanging on to their own bit of turf, as it were. People absolutely were hanging on to their own bit of turf, and they still are. Bringing together all of these personalities today is probably the hardest thing I'm doing. Uh, you know, as much as I'd love to say curation is super glamorous and so, so artistic, in the end, 80, 85% of the job of doing something like this is production and managing personalities and remembering who goes where, why they go there, the context you're showing them in, the context you're showing them in for whom they are today and what they're doing today, but also respecting what they did and where they were. You have to know the whole scope of it and then who didn't they like from 20 years ago? Who do they get over it and they're best friends now? And who do they still fucking hate? So, so you got even more multitasking to do than a regular curator, maybe. Exactly. It, it's a lot. Um, but we're working with mostly living artists and we're working with artists that are still very active today. And we want to respect them and we want to give them the sight lines they deserve. We want to give them the stories they deserve. And then we also want to elevate those stories to help continue to push them because they're trusting us. So we want to thank them by continuing to push them forward. Um, and I wondered if I could just ask you a couple of London questions, Roger. There's a really interesting, there was a really interesting um, scene in Covent Garden in the late 70s. Now, now Covent Garden is lots of quite nice international brands living in the shadow of the Royal Opera House. It wasn't ever thus. Um, can you tell us, a, you've got some, some wonderful film footage as well um, of the Covent Garden scene. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, in researching London, I knew a lot about the graffiti here. I knew a lot about the street art, more than the average person, but nowhere an expert in it at all. So I really enlisted a few people that I trusted that could tell me so much more and steer me in the right direction and make sure I don't fuck up too much. And Covent was just something that came up over and over again in things I would read, newspaper articles, old TV, and from every single artist I spoke to. And I knew it was just such an epicenter and so, so important. And in gallery one, right when you walk in, there's a massive painting across the whole wall by Mode 2, who is one of the legends of London, of his memories of Covent that he made in here. And it's put together of, you know, memories, graffiti, stores that aren't there anymore, where everyone was hanging out. And it tells the story. And Mode is, the, you know, one of the best people to tell that story and talk about. And we needed to respect that. And I knew that was important. And it was the way we are showcasing Covent. And just finally, um, another massive London name is Malcolm McLaren. Um, and it feels like he's constantly in conversation with the likes of Run DMC and, and all of the, the, the sort of commercial as well as the cultural side of it. Malcolm McLaren was so good at that, as were those early hip hop um, acts. Can you tell us just a little bit about that happy, that happy moment when, um, when this subcultures became commercial juggernauts as well. Not obviously happened for everyone and not, not a lot of people wanted that, but commerce and these subcultures were arm in arm from the beginning, it seems to me, right? 
Absolutely. Well, first, being able to include artists like Jamie Reed and Malcolm McLaren in a show like this is incredible. I grew up, you know, listening to that and buying the t-shirt and the poster. I have Jamie Reed and Sex Pistols tattoos on my arm. Um, and the happy accident, if we want to say that, being in this building on King's Road, down the street from where so much of that started is an honor in a sense. And again, meant to be, I guess, maybe it's not a happy accident. And working directly with, you know, Jamie and his gallerist, working directly with Young Kim and the Malcolm estate and getting things in here, not just, you know, putting something on the wall, like, oh yeah, that was important. Let's talk about it on the timeline, but actually really respecting it and showing it was so important. As any subculture from skateboarding to punk rock to the fashion, you name it, I mean, they start and eventually there's that canon and enough uh, journalists, enough uh, people that come from that scene become big and music and boom. And that canon happened on so many of the subcultures in this show and they now all have a lot of subcultures coming off of them. Well, Roger, thank you so much and uh, congratulations on an epic show. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. We're here till May 9th, so I hope everyone can come down and see it. Roger Gassman there. Thanks, Roger. One of the dizzying array of talents whose vibe we also dug was the graffiti goddess turned fashion designer turned brand head honcho, Claw Money. Real name, Claudia Gold. She stressed the likes of Britney for the Super Bowl while keeping cool cachet with super fans of the likes of Rihanna and MIA. She'll tell you that herself. Here's Claudia, a.k.a. Claw Money, introducing herself in her own unique way. I'm the pebbly poo and I'm the queen of rock. I make a lemon sweet like a lemon drop. It's Claudia Gold, a.k.a. Clawmoney. Claudia, um, thanks for having us in the echoey. We're, we're, in a, we're in the equivalent of the chill-out room here at the Saatchi Gallery, the only wall that is not, the only room that is not bedecked with colour and, and virtue, I suppose. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you started out, because um, there is such a vibrant scene, there is such a lot of colliding um, influences here. Can you tell us a little bit of a little mini biog uh, at the beginning? Sure. I am from New York. I originally am from Queens, Fresh Meadows more specifically, and then I moved to Long Island to go to high school. I moved back, or I moved into Manhattan in 1986 to go to the Fashion Institute of Technology where I was beguiled by graffiti and nightclubs and didn't really concentrate on school too much. Did that feel like a scene? And was that, if so, was that a scene that felt easy to enter for you? Or did it feel like kind of like a a house on the hill that was a little bit distant? Well... Nightclubs and hanging out with guys wasn't a problem, but it was a problem when I wanted to... Occupational hazard. (laughs) But when I wanted to write graffiti, I was not welcomed initially with open arms. It was... seemed very clear to me that since my nickname since childhood was Claw, that I was destined to write graffiti. I mean, obviously. But I was uh, a bit of a lone wolf for a long time when I first started Tell us about the early stuff, like when you get the, when you get the can in your hand, how, how do you get the confidence? You're evading people as well. This is not just like, this is not being a painter in, a, in an artist's studio. Obviously, there is, something, there is something subcultural and a little dangerous about it. How did it feel starting off to have that can in your hand and to be sort of 
making what was in your mind this sort of huge, this huge public art? Well, I don't think I was making huge public art. I was making personal, small, quiet attempts at art for myself. It wasn't like this was an artistic moment and I was an artist and I must express myself. I think I felt very invisible in the world and graffiti allowed me to have a voice and this persona that was sort of larger than life that I sort of could compartmentalize myself into when I had to sort of take on the role of a bomber. Much later, it transformed into art. That's what we were saying with Roger, like it, kind of looking back on this stuff, it becomes a canon, but it also feels like something that is a freeze frame of a moment in time. Looking personally, you, having looked around this exhibition, taking part in the exhibition as an artist, do you feel that it's a freeze frame or do you feel that this stuff has become canon? Yes. I mean, I think by the repetitiveness of it and the willingness that the culture keeps growing, that it, it must be looked at in that view. Looking down the other end of the telescope, right, at this stuff. But you can still, it still has a kind of wet paint feel. A lot of this stuff feel, still feels like it should be on the side of a subway train, right? You can't get that away from it. And I think that's the success of a show like this. There is an energy, maybe it's the force from the spray paint and that being translated now with brushes, but there is this very uh, electrifyingness to it, and it does uh, make you feel as if you, you know, you're in alley in you know Brooklyn or in Saatchi Gallery. In terms of your inspiration, did that initially come from inside, or were you riffing off the rest of the scene? Do you know what I mean? Were you did you have heroes and heroines in the scene that you were looking to emulate? Because that's a lot of the time how people start off. A hundred percent. I was obsessed with uh, Zephyr, who has a, a painting, and he was uh, a mentor of mine, and I, I would really try to copy it. I was terrible at it, and then I sort of changed my style up quite a bit and got more proficient at... I migrated from letters into uh, iconography, where I started painting this three-nailed claw instead of writing my name. And that morphed into a whole thing. I have a business, a clothing business with it for the last 20 years. And in this show, I'm not actually exhibiting my art. I am exhibiting my fashion. Roger asked me, do I want to do paintings this show or fashion? And it's 50 years of hip hop. I'm working on many exhibitions in New York City with it. I felt like it's a, a real moment for the culture, less about me and more about the canon. Making that transition from, from the painting and the wall art into the fashion, did that feel, I mean, your claw is such a great logo. As you say, it was, a, it was a tag that was meant to be a brand, perhaps. But how did it feel when it did transform into one? Was it an easy process? There's a lot of an idea with graffiti that it's something that just happens or it's a renegade culture, which I guess it is. But there's a lot of hard work in it. You've turned this tag into a brand. Did it always feel like that was the ambition or was it kind of, was it a series of happy accidents? It was a happy accident. I was in fashion. I went to college for fashion, and I worked as first as an assistant stylist and then as a stylist, later a fashion editor, costume designer. And I had stopped painting graffiti and was really concentrating on my career, and I met a young lady 
who had a lot of the similar issues I had when I was first starting out of uh, non-acceptance and people really um, giving a lot of misogynistic attitudes. And so we began a five or six year just assault on New York City, all while I'm keeping my professional fashion stuff happening. 9-11 happened. Uh, New York really dried up. Uh, I was wheeling and dealing high-end designer vintage. My clients stopped coming. Commercials, videos, and catalogs stopped shooting in New York. And Claw Money, the brand, was sort of born out of the ashes of that because people would say, hey, you want to do a claw for my... I see a claw over here. And then I realized I could really use the graffiti as advertising for my clothing. And then I noticed that people were wearing the clothing and it sort of took place of the graffiti with the prominence. Like you said, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of knowing people, having connections, having been in the industry a long time. And I really got to work on the fashion. And I wanted to ask you, I, I spoke to Roger about the mashup of the commercial and the, and the subcultural, and, and it seems like they've always been such happy bedfellows that there was early hip-hop and a lot of early punk. There was, a, there was a sort of way to monetize the voice of the streets really quickly. Not in a bad way. This is not a bad thing. There's a wonderful gift shop here at the Saatchi Gallery, right? What about for you? Did, did it feel that your subcultural kind of leanings, perhaps, did it feel that they would make good business? Well, one of my uh, gripes is that this has become so commercial. Even though I do have my brand, I, I have had many opportunities to expand it to like a, a large sort of cut and sew brand, and I never wanted to. I make one-of-a-kind pieces, handmade. I feel like a lot of these brands through commercialization have taken out the creativity and identity that we learn from punk rock, we learn from hippie and rock and roll culture of customizing hip hop to customization because they wanted to sort of expand on all of these ideas. And I would like to see um, stuff go back to more individualized and less commercial. Yeah, maybe it's more like additions. There's less of stuff, maybe. Less of stuff. But people want, you know, the globalization of the culture, they want to see what they see on TV. Most people don't have, or they haven't been brought up to think that they can, you know, alter their look themselves. And um, I would like to see more of that. Just finally, Claudia, looking at, looking at this, looking at all this stuff arrayed, delving right back into the beginnings of this culture... Seeing it arranged in a kind of museum in a gallery context, it doesn't take anything away from it. It kind of gives it an extra life. But did you ever think, starting out and wanting and tagging and, and in your early career, that this stuff would be arrayed across six floors or whatever? It's 15 huge rooms here at the Saatchi Gallery or its equivalent somewhere else in the world, that that culture would be so celebrated and so meaningful rather than just something temporary and ephemeral and renegade? Well, I think it's very important for a lot of the key people in the culture to elevate the culture. And that's what we're doing here. Roger has really put in so much time and effort to have this viewed through a lens of um, seriousness. 
and... You're making a serious face now as well. Am I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... I'm here to elevate the culture. I'm here to elevate women in the culture. And I want everyone to know that they can be a part of it. That was Claudia Claw Money Gold. And do we have time for one of the founding fathers of hip hop and a great, great visual artist? Of course we do. Here is Fab Five Freddy, no less, in full flow, talking about his new series of artworks that depict black pirates in all their frock-coated, tricorn-hatted, swaggering majesty. I've been curious about pirates, particularly black pirates, for a long time, and then I picked up on it about a year ago and started doing more research, and I found out that at least a third of pirates in the Caribbean in the 18th century were of African descent. But from the dozens and dozens of pirate movies that I've seen, many I've loved, you would never know that many pirates were of African descent. So the history and the little text explains that at that time, this is probably the only sense of freedom a person of African descent can have when European cities are being built from the profits being taken from the slave trade, et cetera, et cetera. And it describes that some were escaped slaves, uh, some were from captured slave ships that joined pirates, and pirates, some pirates also split up what they were taking, what they took from the big ships equally, and there was a sense of democracy among pirates before democracy actually existed in America. So all of these things have come up in my research and motivated this body of work. This is actually Queen Nzinga III, and she was a, an actual African queen, warrior queen, literally. So I'm playing off of that building history the way so much mythology has been built via Hollywood and things like that. I'm just taking a page from that same book. And I use digital techniques. All of my work of the last 10 or so years has been digitally created, printed on canvas, and sometimes additional mixed media added. And so this is like a, a newer incarnation of those works once again. Yeah. Fab Five Freddy there. Thank you to him and to Claudia, a.k.a. Claw Money, and of course to Roger Gassman. Beyond the Streets is on at the Saatchi Gallery now until the 9th of May. And that is it for this week. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Goo. Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you for tuning in. <laughs>